Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com forward slash swoopsworld. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial, A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L.com forward slash swoopsworld. You're listening to the Talk Story Radio Network. Welcome to another edition of Swoops World, right here on the new Talk Story Radio Network. Swoops World, where you get all you need to know about arts, culture, news, and happiness. Our number, if you want to give us a call tonight, is 562-912-3444. You can always email us at swoopsworld at gmail.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Once again, if you want to give us a call, that number is 562-912-3444. Now just sit back and enjoy Another edition of Swoops World on the new Talk Story Radio Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Swoops World Late Night. It is March 29th, 2017. Looking forward to a big night. We have Tom Mossman joining us from Go the Distance Multisport Training, and uh, we'll get a chance to talk to him, talk about everything he does in the, in the world of training triathletes. And uh, always going to be a fun time. I've known Tom for quite some time. And uh, getting to know more about what he's doing now with his business and stuff is going to be a great time. And then after that, followed by the great Anthony Davis out of USC, five-time national champion, two-time All-American. And it's always fun to uh, chat with AD. We talk about a lot of things in the world of sports and uh, just a bunch of, a bunch of things all, all in general. So we're going to be doing that after uh, Tom. So I hope everybody's having a great week. And we're going to just jump right on into this. We're going to take our first break. And listen to little Channel 3 Manzanar. And you're listening to Swoops World on the Talk Story Radio Network, sponsored by HealthyNewDay.com. Back after this. This uh, next song, one of the very first songs we wrote together, me and Kim. He wrote the music. I based the lyrics on uh, my family's experiences in World War II. Relocation camp called Manzanar. Oh, 
doing? This is Joe Walsh. I'm speaking on behalf of Rad. It's okay to rock and roll, right? But don't drive home drunk. If you're drunk, call me up. I have a limo. I'll come and get you. Sleep all day, out all night. I know where you're going. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, Rad, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day I wake up at 5. For those caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org slash caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Talk Story Radio Network. Hey, this is Sean Paul on the Wall, and you're listening to Swirl. And welcome back to Swoops World, and it's time to uh, let's get Tom on the line and get a chance to get started with this here. Uh, and here we go. Hello. Hello. We'd like to welcome Tom Mossman to the show. He's the owner and coach at Go the Distant Multisport Training. Tom, welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, Keith, very much. It's 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 good to it's good to be able to ch- catch up and chat. I've I've known Tom as I was telling the listener. I've known Tom for over twenty years, uh, but uh, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, Tom. Where you grew up in this world, and and how you got started uh, with your training. Uh, okay, well, I'm kind of an old guy, so <laughs> my story's kind of extended. But cliff notes, cliff notes, down in, yeah, cliff notes. Pull it down into a nutshell. I've lived in California most of my life. Um, I was a runner and a swimmer from a very early age, competed in both through all of my school years and clubs and school and all of that. Um, and then, you know, like life, things happen, and I kind of got away from it for a while. And uh, then in, um, in 1991, I got diagnosed with cancer. And obviously I came through it. I I went through all the treatments and and everything, and I survived. And I've been living a good, long, good, long, uh, healthy life ever since. But when I hit my 10-year anniversary for um, being in remission, um, I thought I I wanted to do something special, you know, mark this and uh, just try to make it a a worthwhile uh, time frame. Yeah. And. I got introduced to the team and training program actually through my wife. And I thought, well, I'll go check this out. And I went to one of the meetings, and by the end of it, I had just signed up to do a marathon for the first time ever in my life. Um, I got totally swept up by the enthusiasm and the people and, you know, what they were doing and the, the cause. And um, after doing my first marathon in 2002 
I then went on to become a part of their program three out of every four seasons, doing half marathons, century rides, and ultimately triathlon. Wow. Once I got a taste of the yeah, and once I got a taste of the triathlon bug, that kind of that just hung on. And towards the end of my time with with uh, TNT, I actually started coaching for them and mentoring athletes. And I found that I got more personal satisfaction out of helping others be successful in what they wanted to do, rather than my own accomplishments for that particular season or that particular time frame. And so I went from coaching with team and training to when I separated from them, I coached on my own for a while, uh, taking care of myself, taking care of a few friends. And then ultimately that led me to another organization that I was with for about six years. And uh, while I was part of them, um, I did a couple of Ironmans um, I've completed several ultra runs, including a six-day, 120-mile uh, stage race in the Colorado Rockies. Um, and uh, about three and a half years ago, I got certified again as a coach, but for triathlon, um, and have been doing it ever since. And then recently, as things happen, I decided to launch my own brand, uh, per se, and go the distance was born and I have some athletes and everyone's doing great and I'm having a good time. Well, that, well that's the bottom line. It's, uh, it's having a good time. Let me ask you this. Uh, when, when it comes to, you know, a lot of people play sports and a lot of people play, uh, you know, a variety of sports, but when it comes to this in, endurance and, uh, you know, the, the, this type of, these type of activities, like you're talking about that multi-day race in the Colorado Rockies and you talk about triathlons and stuff like that, uh, when you're training people, I know a lot of it is physical, but I got a, I have a feeling that, you know, you don't get the kind of breaks you get when you're playing basketball or baseball or football or hockey or soccer. I got a feeling there's a big part of this is all mental. Well, it's a huge part of it. Um, it's amazing what we can make our body do. Um, there are limits, of course, but the reality is, is if you're able to endure certain levels of pain or if you have the mindset that you're going to finish no matter what the situation or you're going to get to that goal line, that uh, finish line, you're going to finish, finish this stage, you know, you're going to do these things, you know, the, your mind plays a huge part in that because if you allow yourself to become depressed, to think about the what ifs, to think about the potential problems that could occur, um, or even how much time it's going to take you. I mean, if you allow these things to, to weigh on you, then they affect your performance and the body doesn't, it doesn't respond as well. I, I, I was listening to an interview recently with a, a guy named David Goggins, who's a ex Navy SEAL. And, and he, he said that the, you know, he, he believes in the 40% rule. And apparently, you know, he says, you know, when you, when you think you, you, you can't go any further, um, you can go, you, you know, you can go more. You can, you, you haven't gone uh, nearly as much as you're capable of going. And, and, it's, and like you said, like you said, you know, the body and the mind are capable of a lot of things. It's just kind of making sure, you know, getting them the meld and, and going to a point where you know where you can push yourself uh, without necessarily hurting yourself. 
yes, you can do this um, without hurting yourself, maybe not initially. And that's where good coaching comes in. Um, You can definitely push yourself to do things that you didn't think were possible. But if you haven't trained for it, if you haven't prepared yourself for it, um, put in the work leading up to it, then you'll get through that. And then you'll find the next week is nothing but agony. It's soreness and pain like you've never imagined. It's weakness, fatigue. Um, I, even though I trained for it and prepared for it, following my first marathon, I got so, so sick afterwards that I was just a wreck for like three days. Yeah. Um, just actual illness on my body because it was like, you know, what did you do to me out here? <laughs> and you, you have to get to really work to get to that level where you can do these things and they don't take that kind of toll on you. It's like I should be able to go out at this point in a, a season, I should be able to do a good five, six-hour ride and then the next day go for a couple hour run right? without it being detrimental to me because I've built up through the season and prepared myself for this. And this is how I work with my athletes too. It's like I take my people and they go through a series of testing at the beginning of their season and we look at what their level is now, what they're capable of, and then I do a progressive build on a week-to-week basis and get them stronger each week and then give them some recovery time and then we start the next cycle of build and we just keep going until we get to the level where the race that they have targeted as their goal becomes just a thing they're going to do and it doesn't become something that I destroyed at the end of it. They can go and uh, give it everything they got, finish that uh, finish that race, get across that line, and be smiling all the way through and having a good time. And that's because they prepared for it properly and built themselves up so they can tolerate the stresses of the race on their body. Right. I'm going to talk to you a lot about your coaching and your coaching style, but I, I got a quick question for you. I mean, you know, you talked about, you know, it's your 10-year anniversary of, of being uh, cancer-free. And, and that's when you ran your first marathon. I, I understand you're an athlete growing up. I understand you're an athlete, you know, through your, you know, throughout your life. But you became a, you know, a, a really extremely high level accomplished athlete later in life. Um, what do you, what do you, uh, how do you, how does one accomplish that? How does one is, uh, fi- find that within them? You know, a lot of people. You know, by the time they get to their, you know, late 30s, 40s, 50s, they're done with competitive or, or anything that's going to be extremely strenuous. How does one uh, become an elite athlete, uh, you know, later in life? Simple. <laughs> it's going to sound ridiculous, but it's simple. It's work. It's, it's, and it's, it's work, but you have to commit to doing it you have to say this is what i want to do and you've got to find some joy in it because if you if it's all work to you and you hate it and you just you go out there and every day just feels like you're trudging through the workouts or you're 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 not finding some sort of joy in what you're doing then you're not going to be successful but once you say this is what i want to do then it's that commitment and 
this is something I also do with each of my people is I say, hey, I am going to commit my time to you, me, and I want you to commit to yourself. I don't want people to commit to me, you know, other than saying they want me to be their coach. I want them to commit to themselves because that gives them more motivation. It's not about, you know, are you going to disappoint me? I'm not your boss. I'm not your, your husband, your boyfriend, or your, you know, I'm just your, your advisor. And I'm going to give you the path. It's up to you to walk that path. And so that's really what it takes to be successful at any age. It doesn't matter whether, you know, you're a high school athlete or you're, I mean, you know, if, if you follow what we do at all, you might have heard of Sister Madonna Buder, who's a nun that has competed in triathlon and Ironman for years and years and years. And at 80, I think she's 83 now. She still races. She still goes to uh, full Ironman events. And she finishes because she finds that joy in what we do. And to be honest, in triathlon, you got to be a little ADD. It's like, yeah. I mean, it's three sports, and you, you know, it's like, okay, I'm done doing that. I want to go do that. I'm done doing that. I want to go do that. That's just part of the psyche. Um, but we're a fun bunch. Well, that's that's another well, thing. I, I noticed that uh, no matter what it is, uh, you, you know, pick your sport, pick your hobby, pick whatever it is. Uh, it attracts a certain group of people, and and, and then there's that, uh, you know, people kind of hang together. They kind of create a, a community. And, uh, you know, with with the uh, triathlon and endurance athlete, I'm, I'm certain there's probably a, a certain community, and you kind of recognize a lot of the same types of personalities. Oh, absolutely. Um, for many years, I would, you know, just say that triathlon – the racing is broken into age groups. You know, uh, I mean, every, we've got men, women, and every five years, most races break you into, you know, your age category every right. five years. Um, and some races even have what they call Clydesdales for, you know, bigger guys like myself. When you hit a certain, you know, height, a uh, certain weight, you participate in another category if you choose to. Well, for several years, it seemed like every time I stepped into the starting corral, with the group that was going to, you know, get going, I'd look around and I'd just keep recognizing the same faces <laughs> from the same guys all the time. And, you know, you, you kind of sit back and, okay, well, I can beat him, but I still can't beat him. Or, you know, it's just, yeah, you definitely get to know the people that, especially the ones that are in your particular zone, um, you get to know them. And, yeah, good bunch of good bunch of folks. I mean, we have a real you know, diverse group of people in the sport. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy to the fact that in the last, oh, I'm going to say four to five years, the sport has grown a great deal where we used to have only a certain number of races to choose from in a year um, around the country. And just, and the pickings were kind of slim. It's like, if you wanted an early race, you literally had to go to Florida to get it. Um, and now there's so many different uh, organizations putting on races and the people that own Ironman uh, World uh, WTC 
they have added more races and there's a couple of different organizations adding the big races. So now you could literally race year-round in the U.S. It's interesting that you say that. I have another friend named Jack Nunn who uh, literally every weekend or, or every month on his Facebook page, he's off to another Ironman. I don't know how you guys do it. Um, and, in the, you know, one of the interesting things I, I was curious about, you know, it, it, it takes some strategy, right? you you got to realize how strong you are as a swimmer. Can you make up time on the bike? Does does that gas me for the run? You know, I mean, I, I hear people talking about the strategies involved. Uh, you know, and you're out there for you know all day long. Uh, how much does that get into your head during the uh, during the actual day of competition? It depends on how well you've trained. Mm-hmm. If you've if you've done your program and you know you've been consistent and you've hit maybe you know I'll be kind of nice and say eighty five percent of uh, what's on your schedule um, leading up to it, um, you've been you know, focused and, and prepare well, then you will have targets you're looking to hit for each sector of the event. It's like you will already say, okay, this is this distance. I should be able to do this in, let's say, a 115 or a 120 um, for the entire swim, and then transition is going to take me X number of minutes based on the way it's laid out, how much I'm going to do to change, things like that. And then the bike, you will have studied the course. You will understand how hilly it is, what kind of terrain it is, how many turns it is in terms of, you know, is it a very technical course? Is it multiple loops? Is it one big loop? Um, you know, things like this. You're going to study it so you understand what it is you're going to be facing. Plus, we have a lot of programs that we can use, you know, like uh, computer programs, to help us analyze this information. And, I mean, I can literally take a race profile and put it on an athlete's uh, bike computer, and it can help advise them as to how, how strong to go in this section, when to back off, when to accelerate, things like that so that they don't burn themselves out at the end of the bike section and would have enough gas in them to get out there and do their run. Wow. When you say study the course, um, you know, when you go to a competition, say you you fly into Florida like you spoke, do you actually, I know you have to compete, you got to conserve your energy and stuff like that, but do you have an opportunity to actually physically uh, look at the course or or kind of, check the course out or is this all basically you're, you're looking at it on a map or, or some, some paperwork that they provided you for the event? You will absolutely have an opportunity to go out on the course and take a look at it. In fact, um, I always recommend um, to, you know, one day before the event, go down to the swim venue, take a look at where the swim is going to occur, identify the areas where you're going to go into the water, where you're going to come out of the water get a feel for how much chop there can be on a particular day, you know, what the wind situation is, uh, what the temperature of the water is. Um, and you'll also get an opportunity to look at what the transition area is going to be set up like, and you can plan how you're going to exit the water, how you're going to get to your uh, bike and set your gear up, and then how to get out and get onto the bike course. For bike courses, I uh, recommend to people get in the car and drive it. 
just you know, yeah, I you don't need to do that on the shorter run, right, um, races, but for a half Ironman or a full Ironman, you definitely want to get out there and see what you're facing on the road itself. You want to get a good look at the road itself, what the condition of the road is, get an idea of um, how many rolling rolling hills, how many big climbs you have, where you can take advantage of uh, descent, pick up some speed, and uh, just all of the conditions of what, what's that. And then the run course, you're not necessarily going to do all of the run course. Um, you know, you could potentially take your bike out and ride and do a lot of it. But most of the run courses um, that are done these days are multiple loop courses, so it's very easy to just go check out one loop of it and, and see what it looks like, um, yeah. see what you're going to be facing. But again, before you ever get to the venue, there are ways to investigate it. Uh, most races will post elevation maps, so you get an idea of how much climbing you're going to have to do um, on a ride, on uh, the bike portion, so you can um, engineer your workouts so that you're riding in an area that has similar elevation gain. It may not be, it's not necessarily going to be exactly what the course is going to be, but if you know the race you have coming up has over 5,000 feet of climbing, well, there's, especially here in Southern California, there's lots of places you can go, and in a couple of hours of riding, you can get 50 miles and five, 6,000 feet of elevation. Right. It's completely doable. So you're training for those type of situations. You're on the computer looking at what uh, they're telling you it's going to be. And then on that day, you're going to go out and you're going to take a look at it and try to be as prepared as you can for it. Excellent. Um, you're listening to Swoops Around the Talk Story Radio Network. Our guest is Tom Mossman of Go the Distance Multisport Training. Tom, I want to talk to you a little bit about Go the Distance and what people can expect if they if they sign up with you. And and, and this is no dig at anybody, but I uh, I know that you know I've talked and you say you do truly personalized coaching. I, I'm on you know a lot of social media uh, platforms, and I see a lot of trainers and they talk about personalized training. And what it is is you, you, you sign up on their website, uh, you put in a bunch of information, and then they send you a, a workout plan. Yeah, you, you never get a chance to talk to them, you never meet them. They're, lots of times they're in another state, and they call that personalized training. And, and not to knock that, I mean, I guess it's, it's, a, good, it's a good way to do it. Is this, is this what you do, or do you have another, another way of doing your, doing your deal? Um, I like to say we have a truly personalized approach. Um, yes, I know a lot of coaches, and I know a lot of uh, people that have uh, businesses, and the businesses are large. And while the intent when they open up the business is to be able to provide what they consider personalized coaching, as businesses get larger, it gets harder to do, Right. Um, especially if you're trying to do everything yourself. I absolutely, not only do I make contacts you know, personal contact with each person that uh, chooses to work with me. Um, if we can't meet in person, I'll Skype with them, I'll FaceTime with them, you know, whatever it is we need to do. I want to be able to talk to the person, get to know the person. Um, I want to understand what their um, life challenges are. Like, I currently have a, um, a young man uh, that I'm working with who uh, works for a major utility and has, is married and has a young child and another one on the way. And he still wants to do triathlon. 
and you know we've had all of these big storms and rains here in, <laughs> in Southern California, which is unusual. And because of it, uh, utilities had him work in twelve-hour days, seven days a week, doing repair work and handling emergencies and stuff like that. So it's like, how do you train under those circumstances? But I know this. I'm in contact with him, and I know what's going on with his life, and I know what his situation is. Um, he's not just a name on an email. Right. So I can actually make adjustments to his schedule based on what's going on. Um, the other thing that I do is I have a, a extensive questionnaire that every athlete fills out. Um, it answers a lot of different questions that I would have about uh, their abilities, uh, what they can do, um, what they have in terms of equipment, what their time constraints are. Um, I also make every uh, every athlete goes through a series of testing in the first few weeks. We do a couple of weeks of just kind of, okay, let's get warmed up and used to working out on a regular basis again if, if they've been away from it for a while. And then we start doing testing. We do uh, uh, run testing and we do bike testing and then the swim is a little different. Um, with the swim, I'm more concerned about uh, an athlete's mechanics than I am about their speed. Because if you can take somebody who's an average speed swimmer and tweak their mechanics and you know, bring them in line with more efficiency and less drag and uh, a little bit more power, then their speed goes up automatically. I don't have to worry about how fast they're going to be going because once you get them doing it right, they're going to go fast enough. Um, but we do a lot of testing with, with the bike and the run, and then we go through a series of tests every six to eight weeks because your fitness improves, your testing level is going to go up, and we have to readjust the numbers. Um, and I use uh, a program which most multi-sport athletes are going to be familiar with. It's called Training Peaks. Um, I put all the schedules in on Training Peaks, and I do it one, two, or three weeks at a time, depending upon the athlete. But one thing that I do is I look at their progress during the week. I look at each of their workouts and see how where they're doing, see if they're having problems. I, I read the notes that people put in the workouts so that I know if they're having a problem or this felt too easy, this felt too hard, uh, this was just a bad day, whatever it is, and I make adjustments as we're progressing um, based on what those workouts are. So to me, that's personalized coaching. That's somebody who actually spends time not only looking um, at what you're going to be doing, but paying attention to what you've done and adjusting it as needed so that you're not suddenly thrust into workouts that you're not capable of doing because two weeks ago you were having an issue and you couldn't get everything done that you needed to get done. So that's that's me. And like I said, I like to get to know my people. Yeah. So they're not just yet not just a series of names. I mean, I know everybody that I work with one on one. And, you know, it's important to me to know these folks because I want them to be successful and I want them to think that, you know, I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm actually trying to give them what they need to be successful. When you're, when you're, if somebody comes to you um, and wants to, wants to, you know, wants your coaching and stuff, um, 
you take people that are like, hey, listen, I don't, I really don't know how to swim, but I, I'm really interested in learning this this sport. Uh, are you looking for people who have some kind of history behind them? Or, I mean, you know, you, or people who are like, listen, I, I'm, I know I'm out of shape, but I've, and not, I've never been athletic, but, uh, you know, I, 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 it interests me. Will, will you take those kind of people, or do you just take people that have already have some kind of history with athletics behind them? I love people that want to do this for the first time. There's nothing like first-timers in my book. I, I absolutely love working with folks that have got seasoning and they know the programs and they know what they want. And when we sit down and we do their, their training plan for the year, they have an idea of what races they want to do. That's great. But when I get the person that says, you know what, I've never done this. I, you know, I haven't biked since I was a kid. I'm not that great of a swimmer, but I run once in a while. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's usually something. They usually do something that gets them to that hey, I want to try a triathlon. I love those folks because there's a certain level of enthusiasm. There's a little bit more, you know, um, interest in um, trying to do their best to get the work done and be successful. And it's, for me, like I talked about in the beginning, the joy of seeing people be successful, to watch somebody cross the line the first time at the end of a triathlon, whether it's a sprint or an Olympic, is fantastic. I mean, the, the joy and the smile, it makes everything you've gone through leading up to it just that much better. So, yeah, I'll, I'll beginners, intermediates, the only folks that um, I won't say I won't work with elite athletes because I have worked with elite athletes in the past, but I will say that elite athletes take – a bit more work um, and my time so it puts me in a situation where I can't work as, with as many people as I might like to if I'm having if I'm working with an elite but you know it's I'm not going to say no to anybody right. somebody says this is what they want to do you know I'm here for you and I'll do what I can for you and you, I'm teaching, sorry, swimming, oh, <laughs> teaching swimming is something that I've been doing for years and did you? Did, did, uh, I mean, weren't I, you a I, lifeguard at one time? Um, I didn't do the lifeguarding thing, but um, I'm I'm a, I'm a little weird with the whole water thing. <laughs> I think people look at me sometimes and they just can't figure it out because I'm actually one of those guys that if I go to a beach, I like to swim out far enough that I can't hear what's going on at the beach anymore <laughs> I can see it and I know I can get back but I like to get out to where it's calm and quiet and peaceful and I'm just floating there and just enjoying just being one with all the water and all the just the environment and I enjoy that I have never had a moment in my life that I can remember where I was uncomfortable in the water and I love to be able to take and try and translate that feeling to others you don't, have to, you don't have to swim out that. that far anymore, man. The supervisors are on after you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. Uh, I, I'll, anything. Whatever it, it, whatever you need, I can, can square it away. Um, and uh, I talk about a lot of this stuff uh, on the website, mm -hmm. uh, gtdmultisport.com. Um, my my uh, philosophies on there, some of my backgrounds on there. 
Um, I've got a couple of blog posts that uh, I'm starting to write more and more and uh, put information out there. Um, so there's, there's a lot of just general questions and information you can get off of the, the website too. Excellent. Do you, uh, do you work with other athletes? So, for instance, uh, Spartan race uh, athletes or the, the American Ninja Warrior type athletes, do you work with uh, other athletes? I have not been approached by anybody like that yet. Um, I do know some folks that do Spartan races um, or, and, and Tough Mudders. Um, I can, you know, it, I can work with whatever the situation is. If you, if you're doing multi-sport, even if you're not doing multi-sport, um, I train people for ultra running, which is anything over uh, 26 miles, uh, on the trails. Um, people that just like to do century rides, you know, they just they yeah. like the bike and that's all they want to do. Well, okay, we can we can work specifically on just century ride stuff. Um, I know some folks that like to do uh, swim events, which can be anywhere from one to five miles in length. So it's not just triathlon. It's any type of endurance sport uh, that you're interested in doing, uh, we can hook you up with a program. Sweet. When you talk about a lot of these things, and I know the races and things, but when you come into training, um, you know, you mentioned a century ride. I, I, I set out to do a century um, not too, well, about a year or two ago. And, uh, you know, besides the fact that I kind of got turned around on my route, um, by the time, you know, I never, I mean, I got, a, I got 80 miles in and, and I, had, I had to take the train the rest of the way because I was trying to get somewhere by a specific time. When you're out training and you're talking like a lot of these long trails and you go on long rides, um, do you ever get out somewhere where it's like, uh, well, I've either made a wrong turn or I've gone too far, uh, getting back, uh, to get back in time for my next client is going to be, uh, going to be kind of dicey. Have I ever gotten in that situation? Yeah. Um, I, no, I'll, I'll be honest. I, um, whenever I'm planning for a workout, whether it's a, a bike run, swims are very structured, so that, that's never an issue. But a bike or a run uh, or a trail run, something like that, I always uh, schedule, at least for myself, time plus more time, uh -huh. um, whatever's needed. And, um, Long training events usually; uh, those are like group events quite often, and I'll have a few people that are all training together, and we kind of look out for each other and, and you know have each other's back. And um, when incidents occur, you have somebody with you. Um, I because triathlon is it's not a group sport, not a team sport; it's very individual. I do recommend a lot of people to most people that you spend a lot of time doing solo training mm -hmm. but you do solo training uh, in the most in the safest conditions you possibly can or you find yourself a partner who is a similar skill level and you train with this partner as often as possible um, but I haven't ever had a situation where I got out to a point where I was not, I was going to miss an appointment, or I wasn't going to be able to, to, to do what I needed to, with the minor exception of 
you know, getting hit by a car. <laughs> that's, not the only, that's, that's the only time I can think of that I ever uh, didn't finish and uh, had to get an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> of all my friends, I think you 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 dodge you dodge death a, a few more times than most, but. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I remember you talking about that, and and I know that uh, you know it's one of those things that uh, I was reading an article the other day. You know, I, I ride a lot, mostly you know just for I just like riding my bike, so I do, I do my daily chores on it. I go and commute, and, and then I was reading something the other day, and you can't let statistics sway you from doing what you enjoy. But it said, you know, you're 17 percent more likely to get hit or hurt on a, a, a on a bike. Uh, by a vehicle than if you are driving another vehicle. Um, you, you, when you teach, when you're training people, and this is some of the things I've learned just from writing, you, most people out there, regardless if you're in a bike lane or, or where you're at, and they're used to being bikes down there and stuff, there's a lot of people who just don't see you or just do stupid things, and it's really it's, it's incumbent upon the bike rider to really know what's going on around them, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, everybody I work with and all my friends, we ride like nobody sees us. Yeah. And, um, and that's the goal. I mean, you have to, you have to be watching what's going on. Um, because if you allow yourself to, and this can happen, especially when you're on a lonely stretch of road or, you know, you're on a long climb or a big descent and you're, you're focused on what the bike's doing, um, kind of get into this tunnel vision and you don't notice the others around you, but you have to. You've got to pay attention to what's happening. You've got to be aware of the cars that are around you, and you just have to treat it like they don't see you. Okay? Yeah. I mean, they could do anything, anytime, and you know, do something goofy, and the next thing you know, you know, you're you're off on the side of the road. Um, fortunately, I mean, I, I hear that statistic, and and I don't dispute that statistic. I know a lot of cyclists yeah. and a lot of triathletes, and I can say with pretty good, you know, assurance that the numbers of us that have actually had contact with a vehicle um, and gotten hurt is extremely low. Right. Like maybe in the one percent range. Now that's not you know taking into account you know i mean i hear about this all the time too you know cyclists killed by car out on oh, yeah. you know highway um there was a pro athlete who um got hit on one of the roads up in camarillo oxnard area that's those big long stretches of farmland you know strawberry fields that are just these roads that just go and go and go and he's off riding doing a training ride and this strawberry truck literally goes by and doesn't it's not far enough away from him and takes him out yeah. it's yeah and you know it's not intentional and i mean these guys were just doing their job but bikes cars sometimes there's a whole you know cyclist i mean Sorry, motorists think we're in the way and we shouldn't be there. And they don't understand that cyclists have the right to being on the road. Yeah. If bike lane, we're supposed to be in that bike lane. But if there's no bike lane, we still, we're a vehicle and we still have the right to be there. And I don't want to begrudge the, the autos. I want them to be able to do what they need to do. And I try to stay out of their way. But they also have to understand I've got to do what i got to do. You know, that brings so, up a good a good. A good 
you know conversation that, that uh, we've had you know here on our show many a time because a lot of us are cyclists. Um, you know the debate whether we should take the lane, uh, which makes you more visible, or should we pull off? The, should we go to the side? And and I go both ways on that uh, quite frequently. You know, like you said, if there's a bike lane, you take the bike lane, but. I've, I, I feel more comfortable at times in certain areas by taking the lane. Now, there are those idiots out there who who will come up on you and, and blow the horn and all that kind of stuff because maybe they don't care about the law, they don't understand the law. But uh, I, which is safer? If Depending upon the road you're on, mm-hmm. if there's not a good shoulder or parking lane for you to, to occupy and, and make your own... Take the lane. Yeah, I mean, it's it, don't don't try to squeeze yourself into a position that you have no room if the car goes by. You know, you've got to be safe too, and like you said, you have that right. So, yeah, I absolutely would take the lane in that situation. As far as the other training you do, I mean, like I, I imagine most of your most of your swim, unless it's the competition, is probably uh, training is probably done in pools, but. Uh, even runners, even, you know, we, we've heard stories about runners, you know, especially running along PCH and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it can be dangerous at times. Uh, you encourage your you encourage your people when they're training. Uh, you know, they have to prepare for a place that might be hilly and stuff and running hills and stuff. But a lot of people live in, you know, live in the city and, and they want and they get home from work and they got time to, to get a good hour's run in. They don't have time to drive somewhere to get a, get a run in. Uh, what's What's safe for them? The most important thing to remember as a runner, actually, if you're a walker, jogger, runner, pushing a stroller, whatever it is, if you're going to go out and you're going to be on your feet on a road with cars, go facing traffic, okay? Always face traffic. If there's a, uh, if you want to be in the roadway, there's a bike lane, you can, um, you can actually run in the bike lane facing traffic, and you just have to yield to the bikes as they approach. Hmm. But... Always face traffic. That way, if something is going sideways, you will see it and you can react. Um, if cars are coming behind you, you've got nothing. You, you know, car veers off and hits you, it's going to be a total surprise. Right. So I train all my people. Face tra- If you're on your feet, you face traffic. If you're on your wheels, you go with traffic. Very cool. You're listening to Swoops World on the Talk Story Radio Network. Our guest is Tom Mossman. He's the owner and coach at Go the Distant Multisport Training. Tom, I'm trying to cover a lot tonight. Is is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you want to you want to touch on? Um, actually, we've been really good at hitting all the high points here. <laughs> um, you know, here's uh, as we addressed earlier as it. I think of my coaching, my style as a very personalized style. And, um, you know, I really believe that the most successful people um, pay attention to their athletes and analyze their athletes on a weekly basis and do the most that they can to help them be successful. So uh, that's one of my, my key things. That being said, I don't, pigeonhole myself in terms of okay i'm in the north valley uh, the north end of the san fernando valley that's where i'm based that doesn't mean that i don't work with athletes outside of this area i have an athlete in dallas right now who's preparing for his first half ironman in july um you know we still 
we talk regularly, we uh, FaceTime, Skype, do different, you know, whatever we need to do. Um, we have a lot of good communication uh, through Training Peaks, through email, through text, and I'm very quick about responding to things like text and messenger and stuff like that. You know, if I'm not tied up in the middle of something like a training or, or another coaching situation, I'll get back to people quickly if they have a question. Um, but I have, like I said, I have an athlete in Dallas. I have another athlete in San Diego right now who's going to be competing at Oceanside this weekend. Um, you know, it's you don't have to be in my proximity to be a part of my team or my program. You just have to um, have the ability to communicate with me and um, follow the program and give me the information that I need to set you up with the right kind of program. So that's, I think we've been really good about covering everything else out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, 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 one of the things I, you know, people who listen to the show regularly know that, you know, I don't hide the fact when, when I know somebody and, and when I, and what I feel about uh, them or, or what they're up to and, and I do, I know, do know Tom. I've known Tom for over twenty years, and, and I know his his heart and his honesty. And uh, you know, if I was if I was looking for somebody to to train me in this, this, there will never be a time when I'm looking for somebody to train me in multi sports. But if I were looking for someone to train me in multi sport, uh, Tom would definitely be the guy. And 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 I and I know I know that you're sincere about what you want to do and how you help people and, and things like that. And 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 I and I told you the last time we talked, I I am so amazed at watching your progress over the last you know five ten years uh i've always known you as an athlete but just watch you just develop into this elite athlete is has been amazing and you know you know kudos to you man that's i know that's a lot i know it took a lot of work and i know it takes a lot of effort but you know most people most people won't do that and most people will, will give up at a, per, a certain period of time because it's it's too tough so kudos to you brother thank you Thank you very much. It's it really is something I love, and my uh, the cost, the, the money I spend on it is big evidence <laughs> to uh, just how much I love it. You know. Hey, and and and, and hasn't left you, so uh, everything's are very, things are still going good, right? Because that's a it's yeah, an expensive well, hobby. Think, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I'm I'm kind of smart because the first time I bought one of those really nice racing bikes. I bought her a new car the same year. So, you know, it kind of balanced out. The bike costs more than the car, I bet. <laughs> no, actually, you know, not quite. But, you know, it, it, was, it, it was a fair trade in my book that she get that car and I got my bike. Yeah, she never, she never asked. She never asked what, what stuff costs. You know, it's never an issue. That's... Uh... The last thing I want to touch on before we go, uh, those of us who who love bikes, and, and I know you have all kinds of things because you have, you got a, you know, you got the your bike kit, you got a, your swim stuff, and you got to pay high dollar shoes and and probably some kind of fancy socks and stuff. But those of us who uh, own bikes, uh, you know, I we have a theory that uh, too many bikes is uh, you know one more than I have. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, uh, you know, I'm always looking for my next bike, and 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 I I don't you know I don't mine's not competitive, but uh, you know I have a road bike, I have a a bike that that's set up for touring because my goal my my ultimate goal is to tour the country by by bike, and then I just have a little fun bike that I ride around on, and and then a little uh, kind of a an urban used to be like a 
kind of mix, half half mountain bike, half street uh, urban yeah, type like bike. Hybrid. Okay. Yeah, hybrid. Yeah. So you know, I'm always looking for my next one. You know. Okay. I understand that. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I, I have a few bikes right now, but I, I will be, I will also say that I don't own every bike that I've always owned. I've sold a couple along the way. And, you know, before I, about the same time that I pick up a new one. So I try to keep the, the actual number in, in a nice equilibrium. <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody gets freaked out about, you know, oh my God, there's another one. No. Well, there you go. Tom, I, I really, uh, I really want to thank you for coming on the show and and uh, and, and telling us about uh, you know, go the distance, and uh, hopefully you'll come back again and uh, share what's going on and, and share, you know and share some of your you know the stories of your people and uh, how they're doing and, and the accomplishments they're making. But once again, let's give everybody your your web address and how they can contact you. Sure, it's GTD as in go the distance multisport.com um, everything on there is my my uh, contact numbers on there my emails on there but uh, the email is coach Tom at gtdmultisport.com um, you can pretty much click on anywhere on there and get a contact uh, for me I also have Facebook and Instagram presence um, basically under the same name um, pretty easily found. Uh, like I said, if you just got questions, shoot me a note. I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, anything you need, uh, I can can help you out. Um, thanks very much for having me. This has been fun. Uh, first time experience for me. <laughs> and uh, and I, I feel okay. So, hey, we'll see. And, I'd love to, I'd, yeah, and I'd love to come back at a future date and talk about uh, my folks. Um, one of the, one of the things that I do on my website is I actually have featured athletes. I saw and that, and we, and we have a few minutes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what that what that section's all about. Well, um, when you've been in this sport a while, you'll notice that m people tend to be very me, 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 me oriented, even the coaches. And some coaches, uh, they will talk a lot about what they're doing and how they're doing and their success at races and stuff like that. From my perspective, I felt that the athlete was more important than the coach. You know, I can give you my information so you know what I can do for you as a coach. But here's an athlete that's actually doing the work and finding success. And so once a, every month, I feature a different athlete with a small bio and we highlight what races they're doing and talk about them uh, throughout the month. So, you know, come on board, and at some point you'll be one of the featured athletes, and people can see just how awesome you are. Sweet. <laughs> well, keep up the good work, brother. It's always a pleasure to have okay. a chance to talk to you. We, we need to we need to get together real soon and uh, grab a beer or something. I, I guess you could still have beer. You guys do that paleo type stuff, so I think it's, it's allowed, right? Uh, yeah, alcohol's not an issue, bro. <laughs> you, you just have to, you, you, you meet a few triathletes, you find out just how much it's not an issue, especially after the race. So, uh, yeah, I, I would love to get together again. It's been uh, two years. Yes, yes, I, I remember exactly two where years. it was. It was your celebration. Yes. <laughs> My retirement party, yeah. Yes, indeed. So. so, okay. All right, man. 
Brother, always a pleasure, man. We'll talk again soon. You bet. You take care. Thanks, Thanks a lot. everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye. Tom Mossman, everybody. A good guy. Uh, go the distance, multi-sport. Uh, check them out, especially if you if you are looking for uh, some coaching or you know someone who might be looking for some coaching. Definitely pass on that info. I'm sure uh, you won't be you won't be uh, let down with what he what he has to offer. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be coming back with Anthony Davis uh, real soon, and, and, and chat with him as always, like we do every every just about every Wednesday night. This is a good friend of the show, John Gannon, and this is called Trinity. Back after this.
side of our 1969 cab over camper where the laughter roared and the gym beam poured and we sat out underneath the stars with a cute hippie girl and pointed out Mars and as we crawled into our sleeping bags she stripped down to her metal tags and we saw all her femininity and said thank you God for Trinity on the line. Welcome to our world today. What's your question? Our continents make up 29% of the Earth's surface, meaning that 71% is comprised of water. Man automatically adapts to environmental conditions. So why do I need to take swimming lessons? Are you ready for kids who eat healthy? Good nutrition can lead to great things. To find out how a healthy lifestyle can help your child succeed, go to mypyramid.gov. Brought to you by the Ad Council and USDA. For a little ride. Now you can share the topics that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. We gotta talk. Let's take a drive. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk radio is topic-driven talk radio. Well, that's what I call real drive. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com. Talk Story Radio. Hi, this is Kelly Z. We're Casey Regan. We're from Music You Can See and AmeriBlues.com and Kelly's Live. We are swooping it at Swoops World. Welcome back to Swoops World on the Talk Story Radio Network. Man, what a great time talking to Tom Mossman. Uh, happy to have him on the show, and, and, and uh, you know we'll be checking back with him, with, checking back with him uh, in the future. It's time to get Anthony Davis on the line, so let's get ready for AD. Try him again here in just a second and see if uh, see if we just had a bad connection. Let's try this again. There he is. Hello. Good evening. Evening. We'd like to welcome back to the show our good friend and colleague, five-time national champion, two-time All-American out of USC, played in the NFL, played in the USFL. Big time author, you know, he, he's just involved in everything, real estate, mogul, you name it. The great Anthony Davis. How you doing, A.D.? Okay, I don't know about a real estate mogul, I'm just in the business. I'm part of, a, I did a book and the spokesperson for the Amen Clinics. <laughs> so yeah, man. I don't, I don't know if that makes me a mogul or not. <laughs> In my world, you are, brother. That's all that matters. It's, it's, in Swoop's world, you are, man. How you doing, man? Doing great. Doing great. 
I uh, had a I had an interesting day today in uh, at the aiming clinics. Uh, we uh, they they uh, scanned uh, former heavyweight champion Mike Weaver's brain. That's right. We talked program. about that last um, week. Well, we I was with him all day today, and uh, he I visited. He came to my offices, our offices. He's visited with Dr. Daniel Amen. Had a great day, and uh, Dr. Amen was very happy to work with him. And it was some great results from him. That's good because you, you know you and I know that these boxers they uh, they go through some stuff, man. And uh, you know these guys they start fighting in their you know early teens, uh, uh, and sometimes younger than that. And you know by the time they retire retire in the pros, some of them are some of them are in their early forties. So that's a lot of a lot of punches, a lot of uh, a lot of blows to the head. One thing about Weaver, he's had 35 amateur fights and 60 professional fights. 60 pro fights, yeah. That's a lot of pounding. And uh, the thing that's amazing about Mike is the fact is when he's never drank or smoked or did anything, but that was a contributor, he works out. But also, too, he's taken to me, he shot a lot of shots to the head, so he's being preventative, and that's why I put him together with the aiming clinics. He's on the same program that I'm on now. I uh, I actually talked to a kid uh, plays collegiate baseball. Uh, I think in Baker Bakersfield College uh, had a number has had a number of concussions uh, playing baseball. And he's twenty eight nineteen twenty years old, and I I spoke to him about you and the clinic and uh, told him if you know if you ever want to make that step to uh, find out where you're at now. Uh, let me know. So, uh, yeah, I think I think it's imperative about anybody who's had brain trauma, uh, experienced it all, or playing the kind of sports where it's a possibility to to really take care of what you got going on there upstairs. Well, it's a lot. Of, you know, that's that's a serious thing. And when we're so much knowledgeable now, that knowledgeable now than we were years ago. And if anyone has any issues, there's help there. And I can tell you, start at the aiming clinics, you can get all the help you can need. And I believe that he has, the, like I've told you before, the, over the course of time we've been talking on radio, uh, the fact is that he has the best and the most comprehensive program in the country. And, uh, you know, a lot of people need to embrace him. I've definitely drank the Kool-Aid. I believe it. And the results for me is just outstanding. So I'm very happy. And I know from my results... We can, we can, we at aiming clinics can really help anybody that has issues like that from A to Z. Sweet. Speaking of that, I saw an article today about the NFL concussion settlement. One uh, billion dollar NFL. This is from Sports Illustrated or ESP, no, I'm sorry, not Sports ESPN.com. The one billion dollar NFL concussion settlement, nearly six years in the making, uh, yet still to deliver a penny to former players and their families for brain injuries stemming from football is revealing an underbelly of the legal system to former players and their families. As the family closed in on being compensated for brain injuries stemming from football, those former players and their, and their families have been facing an onslaught of issues from attorney retainer fees that could reach as high as 40% to lawyers poaching clients from competing, competing attorneys, from a slew of opportunities seeking a piece of the pie, lawyers effectively threatening to sue former players to ensure they get their fees. Did you hear this story, and what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I think that's disgusting. 
And I've always said it should have never gotten that far. I believe that the NFL should just embrace all the science and just started putting these guys on programs that I'm on, like the you know the the, the, the supplement program that I'm on, the, the hyperbaric chamber program. It never got to this. So now you got people like sharks threatening to sue people, need their money. So it's, it's all about greed now at the expense of these guys' health that are, that are in the shadows of suffering. That's just disgusting to me. You know, I heard that, and uh, it, it, it's just unfortunate that it comes to this now. But it's never had to be this way, and it doesn't have to be this way. I just don't. I just think the league and all these professional sports and collision sports should collectively get together, do a roundtable, discuss this out, and, and talk it out. But now it's all about the money and the greed and everything. It's, it's just really disgusting. It's, it's, it's terrible. It is, and you know, we're talking about players who, 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 you know, players or families of players who, who won the lawsuit. A lot of those players can can use the money to to to, to get treatment and whatnot, and it's all tied up with uh, attorneys and, and 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 greedy people, and, and not you know not not just attorneys being greedy, but other other people that are being greedy, and and uh, it just stalls the whole process. And people who really need uh, the treatment and the, and the compensation just don't get it. I understand. You know, I mean, uh, I agree. I guess I think it's time for. Uh Somebody needs to call Mr. Trump and help us help out. <laughs> you know, Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump's had his issues with the NFL himself. Yes, he did. You know, it's I believe I believe that he could be influential in in, in this situation. But I'm I'm just talking. It's just a wild thought that I've had. And then also, I think about the New England Patriot owner, Mr. Kraft. I think Mr. Kraft can be a leader in the NFL ownership in terms of what this uh, this concussion thing is about. I, I just feel that from a distance that he's very passionate about players and made the brand of this league. Right. Uh, he knew something. But, you know, you know, I could be wrong. But the thing is, uh, the league should step up and say, hey, we know it's an issue. We need to, we need to get our hands around it. We, we need to start doing something here because it's not going to stop because it's going to be another generation of players going to have the same issues. Or it's going to get worse. What is it going to take? Is somebody just dying to feel for you guys to get it? So anyway, uh, I don't know where it's going to go. But the bottom line is, regardless of the legalities of the situation, we at the Amen Clinic are willing to help former players and current players with the situation uh, of, of the concussion stuff. Regardless of legality, you still got to deal with your health. You're still going to go out there and play. So we would like to talk to anybody or anybody around football that would listen and get something going and, and help these ball players currently and the ones off the field. What is it going to take? I don't know what it's going to take. No one wants to abolish the game, but also people got to realize there's consequences of playing the game. And like I said before, if you don't, if you play the game, you have to treat the brain. If you don't treat the brain, the brain will fade. If you don't treat the brain, the brain will die. Right. So you you have you have to do that, and then, and then you deal with all other sports. You got you got the soldiers. You got the MMA fighting. You got boxing. You got hockey. You got soccer, and then you got the general public that deals that deals with issues. So, but since we're talking about the National Football League, it's it to me it's just disgusting that you have to sit down, do a roundtable, talk to all these these top neurologists and doctors in the country to make this happen. And it's not moving. 
you know, you know, we at the Amazon do our part and try to do our best and uh, and try to get the word out about, hey, it's a program that can help, and that's all we can do. Well, we're that's a... what I'm trying. Go ahead. That's what I'm trying to do. You know, we're, we we want to package the situation to discuss, have a discussion about the concussion and, and, and brain trauma that's carrying on in this in this country overall. But since we're talking about sport and football, this is a major issue. And with the lawsuit involved and the concussion lawsuit and the movie came out, Concussion with Will Smith, we tried to make it aware, make people aware of the serious ser- the serious situation about brain trauma playing football. While we're on the NFL, and I'm going to change change the subject just a little bit, uh, a lot of things happened this week. Uh, one of the things with the owners, you mentioned uh, um, the, the owner craft of the Patriots. The owners approved the Raiders, the Oakland Raiders, moved to Las Vegas. What are your thoughts on that? Well, of all teams that shouldn't be in Vegas, it's probably the Raiders. <laughs> Well, I listen. I, I'm a I'm a longtime Raider fan. I had season tickets when they were L.A. Raiders, uh, but you know they got a history. You got guys who didn't even show up for the Super Bowl because they were lost in Tijuana or something. Uh, Las Vegas is probably not a good spot for uh, for that that team. I'm thinking unless you unless you the personnel has changed drastically, uh, I see some big issues that could happen there. <laughs> It's a possibility that, but the, the situation up in Oakland, you know, it's, 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 it's a deteriorating part of town. Uh, I know Mark Davis has tried his best to get things going. I know the city of Oakland is saying, you know, they're not even just talking. They've never really had serious talks, and they made this big move and stuff. But, I mean, that's the way it is. This, uh, these owners are, are putting a bunch of money in his pocket. They already got relief, re- relocation fees with the Rams, relocation fees with San Diego. Now they're going to get relocation fees from the, from the Raiders. I believe, from a new development standpoint, the way Las Vegas is, I mean, I, th- I think it's a good move. I mean, well, in terms of the kind of element that you attract to Las Vegas and Nevada, yeah, you can say it could be a it could be a, a touchy, touchy thing. But from a strictly business point of view, for the Raiders and Mark Davis and ownership, that's a good move. Well, what yeah. It does with the, then what it does with the, that part of Nevada, Nevada. First of all, the land, the mass around it is going to go up in value. So whoever owns that land is very lucky at the right place and the right time. Well, yeah. I, fact, I, in fact, our firm is, is, is uh, teeter-totter looking at some stuff, some opportunities there. But that's what happened. Once they approve that move, things are really jumping over there in Nevada. I mean, I think it's a good move from a business standpoint. It really is. Well, uh, it, and, believe me, and believe me, I don't think the owners would have voted overwhelmingly except one to do that because they know that they know it's a profiteering thing to go to Nevada. Oh, heck yeah. Listen, I, I, I joke about that, uh, you know, about being a bad place for the Raiders. But here's, the, as a Raider fan, uh, you know, I was hoping they'd come back to L.A. They had an opportunity last year uh, when San Diego, they could have done something together with San Diego. Uh, you know, that looked like, you know, as a former uh, season ticket holder, that would have been right up my alley. Las Vegas is, I mean, they just built a new arena. They've got these huge uh, uh, entertainment uh, 
bands and events that are going on in that new T-Mobile arena. Uh, it's always attracted a, a shitload of people to Vegas. Uh, the, mat, the fact that the Raiders will be there and, and, and if the, you know everybody they play will have to come through there. Uh, it's it's strictly a business boom for a town that already makes just rakes in money. They they basically print money in Vegas, so it's it's a great move for business wise. It's a, it's a great move for the NFL. Uh, it's just guys like me who live in L.A. or in L.A. County who want, we're hoping they come back this way. It's, it's you know, I, I, but you know, it's an excuse for me to go to Vegas, and I, I'll take any excuse to go to Vegas. Well, I mean, but still, I. I, I it's a better move for them there than it is Los Angeles. You see, they're, they're going to be competing with the with with, with the L.A. Ram base and, and, and the Charger base. So, I mean, you see those two they're, teams. But, but here, uh, A.D., listen to the thing. L.A. Ram and Charger, you know, more Raider fans showed up at Charger games than Charger fans do. You know, Raider fans, you know, where that's the base. You know, they wouldn't be competing with them. In a real scheme of things, numbers-wise, uh, I get what you're saying, but uh, you know, San Diego put a thing up years ago where you couldn't even you couldn't even get Raider game tickets online. You had to show up to the stadium to get them, and they limited you to the amount you could get because more Raider fans were showing up at, at uh, Jack Murphy or whatever they called it, whatever they called it recently, than uh, Charger fans. Right. Yeah, you're right about that. I mean. Uh, the Raiders travel better than than the, than the Raiders. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, the Raiders uh, have a better fan base than the Chargers. Yeah, and the probably the Rams up. until the Rams start winning again. Well, if, if the Raiders came, well, the Raiders were able to come to L.A., the, the, the Chargers wasn't coming, and they would be the team in Southern California. Yeah, because of the of being here once, being a championship here once. They would be the team that was going to be the following. It didn't happen with the Chargers and the Rams. But going to Nevada, that's all the Raiders. That's it. Let me ask you, you you, you talked about the Raiders in the 70s. Um, did you ever play, play against the Raiders? Yeah, I played against the Raiders. Jack Payton, Gip Thomas, Redman Vifikoff, John Matusak. John Vella. Oh yeah, I played against Ken Stabler. Yeah, I played against him. Did did Tatum really? You know, when you talk about these guys, and you know, and a lot of times over the years, uh, you know, you hear stories about guys, and, and, and they become these legendary players, uh, and and some most of them right rightfully so. Uh, as a running back, I'm probably you probably got tackled by a lot of these guys, like the twos and and and, and Tatum and stuff like that. Uh, did Tatum really hit as hard as? I mean, I, I was at the Super Bowl where, where he hit Sammy White. I saw that live. But uh, did, you know, on a on a day to day basis, did this guy hit as hard as as he's as a, you know the legend is uh, when you played against well, guys like hit, that? He's a hitter. I mean, he was a hitter. I mean, I talked to I talked to Jack. Uh, I guess what ten years ago before he before he died, and of course, you know, he had a patch over his eye like the Raider. He lost his foot because of diabetes. Right, looked like an old Raider. And he told me, he says, you know, A.D., when I like to hit a guy coming across the middle, he said, I like to lock him, lay him out and just, and just stand over and let the sweat drip on him to cool him off. I said, Jack, you know, you're, you're, you're lethal. He said, well, it have to be. This, ain't a, this, is not a, this is not a pansy game. This is a hitter's game, and I'm a hitter, so... 
Tatum can hit. You played in the Garland era. Hit. You he played can in the era. I mean, Tatum, Atkinson, uh, uh, Skip Thomas, they all can hit. Yeah. Charlie Phillips. Buck Buchanan and all those guys, yeah. yeah. The more ready, you know, Ted Hendricks, Stark, and all that kind of stuff. Well, those guys are something else. Unbelievable. You played in an era great. where the game, the era that the game is never going to see again. Uh, and, and you know, you know, let's let's not talk. You know, I know we talk about the the the, the brain injury and stuff like that, and and, the, and that trauma. But as far as the game goes, and and and, and as a fan, um, you know, there were some really severe, some really you know you know head slaps. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the things that were going on back in those days. The game was really became it became what it was in the NFL in the in the late sixties through the through the mid seventies. It became that sport where you know you, you guys were really getting hit. Uh, the excitement of the game, uh, you know, the big plays, you know, the plays that have gone on to live in uh, quote infamy. Uh, you know, a lot of those happened in those eras. You know, the catch, the uh, you know, the uh, the fumble, or the, the 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 thing with uh, uh, Pittsburgh and the Raiders and stuff like that, and then a tip and all that kind of stuff. You played in the era where a lot of that stuff happened, and and you know, I'm sure my kids will say great things about this era, but I I, I got a real a real good feeling about the, those those days and, and and a nostalgic feeling about those days. Has the game? Um, Am I am I overthinking it? Is is, is the game still as, as exciting and as nostalgic as it was back then, or uh, am I just or has it changed? Well, first of all, from the from the standpoint of the game, the game has changed in terms of size and size of the ball player. Speed is very comparable, but uh, the bigger men interior are, are bigger and faster now. But 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 the, but the thing is. The rule changes will change the game. You know, you know, uh, you know. It was fair game from every everybody on the field. Now they sort of protect the quarterback and stuff like that. You know, so if, if you spear, uh, they stop that. They, everything went when I played, and it was sort of a glamorous type of thing back in back in the I believe the seventies was a crossroads of the greatness. I mean, you know, everybody going to talk about their own area of being the best. They talk about the fifties. They talk about the seventies, the eighties, and now the two thousand. And everybody's gonna have their choice, but I believe, I believe, the players of the '70s, especially some of the skill, the skilled positions, can play today. You got guys like Simpson, who was a nine-three sprinter, could play today. Cliff Branch can play today. I can play today. Uh, Walter Payton can play today. Tony Dorson can play today. There's a lot of stuff. Daryl Green can play today. You know, I can, I can just a list of ball players. Eric Dickerson can play today. Gil Fares, Jim Brown. You know, so. Uh, the, the, the thing, the thing about the six and seven, you got players who could play today, and the game has changed, and, and, and the game has changed tremendously because of the rule change. Speaking of rule changes, uh, there was a rule, rule change this week. There were several, um, but uh, one of the ones that caught my eye was no more leaping uh, to block a field goal. Uh, I, I don't get that. I don't get that at all, man. Well, I mean, the thing is, you can't you, you you can't you can't jump over somebody's back and block. I think if you can get up there and, and run and leap, that's okay. I don't think you need to change that, but there's no leaping at all. 
I'm against that. You yeah. get up as high as you can, you know. You just can't, you just can't be going up over somebody's back and doing that. You got to do it from the other side of the line of scrimmage. But that, but that change is totally no jumping. That's not right. I don't believe that's right. Yeah. Pretty soon they're going to be taking away the kick return. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've talked about it. I mean, you know, it's, it's just start the ball on the twenty yard line. I, I don't know what what they're going to do. I, I I love the sport. I know you. I know you have a, 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 a great feeling about the sport, like you said, where you, you you care about people being safe and stuff like that. But I think you know there there's a there's a there's a, a tipping point where they they may hit that tipping point and they're going to lose a lot of spectators and lose a lot of a lot of fans. Uh, you know, we talked about the seventies. Uh, here's a guy I think I want to know about. I know what your thoughts are. Uh, you know, he he started his career in '78. Uh, I, as, a, as a young kid back in the days, uh, you know, I remember when Doug Williams, uh, you know, was quarterback and things like that. And we talked, you know, you and I have talked in the past about the, the black quarterbacks and, and how they came up and, and what it was like in your era. Uh, what were your thoughts about, you know, when when Doug Williams came around and I, I think he won a, I think he won a Super Bowl, uh, and, and and you know the, the the questions about whether or not. You know he was he was going to be able to do what he did. Uh, you know, came out of Grambling, which is a great, great, uh, you know, uh, historically black college. What were your thoughts about uh, back in the day when uh, you know that was a position the blacks didn't, weren't allowed to play, and then guys started uh, breaking that barrier? First of all, Doug Williams was the first black quarterback to be drafted number one. And he went to one of the worst teams in football, which I was part of, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Never didn't win anything. And uh, it was tough for them then. You know, the problem is with the black quarterback. you got to remember. And, and the thing that, was with this, that, that's, that, that is upsetting to me is that I played in the era where they didn't have confidence in a black quarterback. I right. mean, I know ball black quarterback. And it's, Jimmy Jones, Messi could have played in the NFL. Sonny Sixkill out of Washington could have played in the NFL. I mean, he's Native American, but I the same thing. He and was he a could've... beast, man. I remember watching him play. Yeah. He could have played in the NFL. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Conway from a kid's name from Tennessee could play, you know, with the NFL. I mean, the, the same guys that are playing today didn't get an opportunity to play. Vince Evans couldn't really couldn't play then. Warren Moon had to go to Canada, you know. So, and Doug Williams was, was the first legitimate first round pick that the NFL has picked, was drafted black. Yeah. He's from the historical black college. He played in Tampa, didn't work out. They try to renegotiate, end up with people, end up with, I think, with the Gamblers or what other team in the USFL. Uh, Joe Gibbs saw something him, brought him to Washington Redskins, and was the first black quarterback to play in a Super Bowl and win it and be the MVP. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, look, I was born in the era where Jim Crow was prevalent. Jim Crow was all prevalent through all parts of our society. I knew black ball players and white ball players co- coexist, and I knew some didn't want to play with blacks. And if they did, they were second class. That was like that on most teams in the National Football League then. Even colleges were segregated. So I was in the era like that and saw that and, and saw the beginnings of of, uh, of Doug Williams' career, which I always thought he was a great player. But I always said to myself, hmm. Now, if they had Marlon Bristol, who was a quarterback with the Miami Dolphins behind Reese, and he was good enough playing in the field with Denver and the Miami how come he never played? So I looked at so when I think of Doug Williams, I think about all the other pre-black quarterbacks who could have played. Right, James Harris and all those guys, and all of them in the '60s. 
these were plenty of guys who played quarterback in the sixties and seventies. But it was it was a segregated thing and a segregated thought, and, a, and it was a segregated philosophy of ownership thinking that blacks weren't even qualified to play that position. It was always the myth was always that blacks couldn't think they couldn't be a leadership. They weren't intelligent enough to be quarterback. And that was terrible. I played in that era. I was a quarterback in high school. I was saying, I, I'm saying, I'm big. I'm Russell, I'm bigger than Russell Wilson. I'm bigger than, than Michael Vick. I was a left-handed quarterback. But I was never going to play quarterback. I was converted to a running back. Yeah. Only, the only place that I was asked to be a quarterback was I got recruited to Oklahoma, which home quarterback. But, see, when I think of Doug Williams, I think about the past and then the future. Okay, where are we going in the future with this? And, of course, it's changed tremendously. But, I mean, did it take you 50 years? I mean, did it take you 35, 40 years to see that? Owners or establishment? I mean, so there is a greatness of what Doug Williams did accomplish, but also it's a shameful situation of what happened, the fact that it took so long. And when I think of Doug Williams, I think of Warren Moon. Had to go to Canada for five years, win five breakups, or how long he was up there. Then he came back with Hugh Campbell, the coach of the Houston Oilers, and he became a quarterback, starting quarterback for the Houston North. But he had to leave the country to play quarterback. Yeah. It, you, it's interesting you, you, you talk about this and in, in the, in the history. And, you know, I'm not here to give a history lesson, but there's so many things that people don't don't, don't know. I, I, I was talking to our good friend Bob Case not too long ago, and he was, he was breaking it down for me about Sam Cunningham. You know, it, because of Sam Cunningham playing for SC, Alabama – uh, you know, they, they, they desegregated their, their football team because they, he'd gone down there and they just crushed Alabama. And I guess uh, Bear Bryant uh, basically decided at the end that they needed to recruit some blacks. So, and this was, what was this? This was 1970, right? So, you know, we think a lot of this stuff has happened long, long, you know, moons ago. But realistically, it wasn't that long ago. No, look, I was in high school when that was going on. So I was, I was right in the middle of Jim Crow's thought process. I was in the middle of all of that across society. I mean, from sport to business and everything else, there wasn't that much opportunity. There's Jim Crow laws in place, and when that, when John McKay threw his team down there, Jim Law first was, was 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 in place. Blacks couldn't congregate with white. Blacks couldn't date white, or vice versa. Couldn't do a whole lot of stuff. You know, whites couldn't be in in, in, in a public space combined with a lot of black people. That was on the book. So, I mean, it, it was awful. I mean, it, it, it was awful. But but also, too, it's one thing when Sam went down there and played that game. Then, then you know, I mean, I, there was some truth to the fact how they desegregated the South. But here, but here's the deal. A lot of the schools in the North and in the, in, in, in the West protested going to the South land because of their segregation laws. And then the networks, the only three in the time, was two, four, and seven. Hawaiian is still talking to some old execs at one time was the fact that they – they threatened to pull all the money out of the FCC if they didn't change their Southern policy. That was one of the things they helped based on what they saw with the Cunningham thing with, with Alabama. So it was a combination of many things. Was that what Sam did? But also, at the end of the day, the big factor, they're going to pull the money out of it. Because teams like Syracuse, Ohio State, UCLA, didn't want to come down and play or give, even give them a shot because of their segregation laws and their thought process at the time. Because you got to remember, in Alabama, just, just six years before that, Martin Luther King was mar- was marching in Montgomery. Right. He was marching in Montgomery, Alabama. So that ain't long ago. Then you got to remember in Tennessee, Malcolm uh, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in, in, in Tennessee. 
two years before that. So, I mean, the attitude was a combination change. I do credit it. The USC, Bear Bryant, John McKay, put, putting on that classic game was a factor. But also, too, the reality of it overall was the fact that the network threatened to pull the money away from the FCC. You know, the thing is, AD, is you never I'm put... I'm incorrect. Somebody would text me and say, well, Anthony's wrong, but I'd like to be corrected. But I, I, don't, I think I'm pretty accurate. You know, AD, you never pull any punches, and, and I'm going to ask you this straight up. Bottom line is, it always boils down to money, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it was, it was right, or, right or wrong, it always boils down to money. It was economics. It was basically economics. And the game was changed, but it was economics, too. And Alabama had to get, get, in, get, in, get, in, get, in, get in link with everybody else in the country because everything was growing. I mean, whatever your thoughts were about segregation, desegregation, had to change because the country was growing. You, you know, you had to get away from that, that, that thought process in terms of, well, I don't want them brothers playing against us whites, and, and, and they were superior, and, and, they, and we were black ball players inferior to the white ball player. See, that stuff had to change. It was proven differently. You know, the segregation about how great Jim Brown went down went down to Texas with the Cotton Bowl. They refused to let him play. They refused. They wanted him to stay in the hotel, and, and the Syracuse team refused to even, you know, come down if they let Jim Brown come down. I mean, all that stuff had to change. That was in the 50s. In the 60s. I mean, if you just told me 50, if you just told, like, like one guy told me, if you told me 50 something years ago, or 60 years ago, that, that it would be segregated playing, would be segregated, would be uh, unsegregated, and blacks would play, I said, no, that wouldn't definitely happen. Well, it did, but it was a slow process. Because when you look at pound for pound of black athletes today versus the athletes in the 50s, they could have done the same thing. They just wouldn't let them do it. They wouldn't even let them go to college, let alone play sports. Right. When, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I shoot from the hip when I talk about this kind of stuff. It might be controversial, but I'm telling, I'm, I'm telling the truth. And if I'm wrong, I want, I want somebody to correct me. Well, here's the thing, and, and, and let's, 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 let's touch on this because you and I, we've touched on stuff quite a, over the years, uh, lots of times. You know, growing up, I mean, you saw, like you said, some of the stuff you you were play, a part of when you were playing, and some of it you. You were, you were probably in high school and stuff like that. Um, we talk about that era. Uh, we talk about some talented players. And, you know, I remember as a young, young kid, uh, you know, you see a guy who, who, who was coming out of a high school who's a great you know, black quarterback. And, and my dad would say, you know, well, he's not going to play quarterback in college. Or if he does play quarterback in college, he's not going to play quarterback in the NFL. They're going to move him to free safety. They're going to make him a receiver. Because Blacks didn't play those positions. Now, what was it like playing in that era with your talent, and knowing what you're capable of? And, you, know, you went on to be the Notre Dame killer, so you know I, you 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 were accomplished. But you probably saw, and like you mentioned, you mentioned some of the guys you saw that you knew that could play, and you knew had had if given the opportunity would do well at that next level. What was it actually like knowing these things and and, and showing up every day? It was very frustrating. I mean, I, you know, I mean, when I was at USC, we had a guy named Orlando Levis, big Mexican kid, six foot two, two fifteen, can run, throw the ball seventy some yards. We had another guy named Howard Studdard, black kid from Manuel, six foot four, two hundred twenty pounds, who can throw the ball run. Never saw the field. We saw Jimmy Jones, who played at FC, but never had the opportunity to play in the NFL and go to Canada. And then, you know, so all, all I'm saying, 
back in the 90s, in early 90s, in the midnight, then you had Rodney Pete come out of FC and go on and play. But the bottom line is, with me, is that the fact when I look at Michael Vick, uh, I was the Michael Vick of my day was more accurate, just was more accurate. That's what I was. When you saw me poor quarter, that's what I was. I see Mike, when I see Russell Wilson, I could have played. All of that. You see, Congress Holloway out of Tennessee, we were, we were similar. He was just right in court. Never got out there. He had to go to Canada and play. So so I'm just telling you, I could have played in the major college football. Look, look, listen. I'm the same size as Patty and he played, but I had I was more athletic and my arm was stronger. But I was converted to money guy. Right. I was, all, I was a high school American at, at quarterback, a throwing and a running quarterback. So could I play Division One? Absolutely. In a heartbeat. And would and would have excelled in my opinion. But if I was coming out today, I'd have been I, I would play quarterback today if I was coming out of high school, if I was on play. I'd have been a left handed quarterback playing to death. But back in the day that wasn't happening at all. For anyone in the country. Like you said, we'd have been converted to another position, which I was converted to running back. Right. That was it. And plus I did play the other positions too. But you know, this kicker, kickoff return. I mean, I was a, I was the first example of the seventy two game. Of course, I was a backup punt returner, the backup field goal kicker, the kickoff man, the kick returner in that game against Notre Dame. But the thing is, I was converted like everybody else was. And now now you hear stories about uh Condridge Holloway out of Tennessee back in the seventies. From what I understood is that the reason he got the pick is everybody else got hurt. And he stayed there. But when he left Tennessee, the NFL wasn't looking at him at all. He had to go to Canada. When Warren Moon came out of the way, after he won the World's Bowl Championship in 1977, he had to go to Canada. He had to go to Edmonton. He was successful up there, but he wasn't in the United States. He wasn't in the NFL. Doug Williams came out in 78 the next year. He's the number one pick overall by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And he was the best player in the country in terms of that position, the way the Buccaneers feared the because he was the number one pick overall. Why? Why is it? Uh, you know, I know I know Canadian football is a little bit different, uh, but uh, a lot of guys have gone up there and done it. You played in Canada for a little bit. Um, why was it uh, that guys were able to play in Canada, which is just just north of here, uh, at the position they wanted to play that they couldn't play here in the NFL? Well, it's called Jim Crow. You know, Canadian didn't care. They just wanted athletes. And the attitude, and the, the NFL should have the attitudes like the Canadians did. If you could play, you were going to play the position here, and, they, and you're going to be the best player. But you got to remember, in Canada, there's a quarter system. It had to be 15 Canadians, 16 uh, Americans. It was like, they used to call us imports. Oh, Bob, that was a mistake me going to Canada. The money was great, but I should never went to Canada. Yeah. I made some mistakes going to Canada. But the bottom line is, a lot of guys go up there because that's the second of alternatives. You know, they got some skills and ability, they can get paid to play. So that's why they went up there. I don't believe that they went up there to showcase that they're coming back to the NFL. Some guys went to the end of the Canadian football, came back to the NFL, like Joe Thiesen came back to Washington Redskins right. and won the Super Bowl. But as a whole, that's the last resort, and then you're out of football. Let me ask you this. Uh, you had, like you said, you Oklahoma recruited you, so you were either recruited by uh, – Either, uh, who was it, uh, let's see, you were probably, what, either Chuck Fairbanks or Barry Switzer. Uh, great, great program with the wishbone quarterback and stuff like that. Why, uh, why is it you didn't, uh, you didn't uh, 
take a take a look at that or, or, or go for that. Um, SC, I know San Fernando, San Fernando Valley kid. Uh, SC's close to home. Is is that the reason you uh, you stayed here? Well, the reason I stayed here too because I remember back then that the, uh, Oklahoma didn't have the, the baseball program. They didn't have that they were comparable to football, but you know they were right there. And then academically, uh, I like what SC had to offer. So that's the reason why I picked that. So I, look, I picked SC for the overall picture, not just one specific. Arizona State recruiting for two sports. There's other schools recruiting me for two sports, and they, they agreed that I was going to play because I was the number one draft choice coming out of high school. Right. So it was clear that I was going to play both sports. If not, I wasn't going to go to school if I couldn't play both sports. Nebraska was going to let me do that. Tom Osborne recruited me really heavily and, you know, pretty much said I'd have been a starter on the 72 team if I have went there at tailback. But, it, you know, it didn't happen. And uh, the overall pitch for me is because what SC had to offer. I had two great coaches, John McKay uh, and Rod Dato. I mean, he was 11 Rod national champions. Rod Dato, man, that, that's, a, that's a legend right there. I was on three straight, but his five straight national titles. So that's one thing. And I was on two of John McKay's four national titles. Wow. Well, wow. I mean, so it all worked out itself. My only problem is I made the wrong state and never, should have went baseball, not football. Just like my coach told me. He says, you might have had all this great fanfare with football. You had a great time playing football. You have celebrity in football, but your career is in baseball because you, you have no weakness. You have all the skills to play 15, 20 years. I didn't listen. I went for the money. I should have been patient. Let me just, that, 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 that's water on the bridge, but I'm very happy that I'm able to stand here and say proudly from USC that I'm the only five-time national champion collegiately in history, and only one in SC ever to do that. And I was—I had to be told I was that. So I'm very proud that it happened that way. Let me just say to our listeners that, uh, and, and you know what, this is one of the things, one of the things I really admire you for uh, is your, you've, I've heard you many a times tell kids, don't go for the sports program, go for the academics, because, uh, you know, a lot of athletes, a lot of athletes don't, don't, don't vocalize that. A lot of guys go there just for the, it's a sports program. Uh, they don't think about the academics. They don't think about the long term. They don't think about the rest of their lives. And it's so important that these kids go and get a good education, uh, take that opportunity for that, for that, you know, sports scholarship and, 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 you know, parlay that in some great education. So, once the once the uh, once the cheering stops, once the limelight's over, they still have opportunities throughout their lives. Absolutely, that's that's what I emphasize all the time. Because yeah. you know, coaches jump around like 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 grasshoppers. You know, they they make promises, they do this, they do that. At the end of the day, oh, well, two years later, they're, they're hopping to another school. Yeah. So if that happens, you you don't go because with the coach, you go for what you need to get out of the university. So it's a one, it's a two way street. So if you're going to pick USC, you go there for SC based on the school you're going to go and major in, academic. And everything else is secondary. Everything's secondary from there. And then if something goes wrong, you still got your education to fall back on. You know, so, and I would tell that to anybody going to any school in the country. That's what, that's how you pick a school. Yeah. And a lot of kids pick it because of this. and No, you don't do that. You pick it because what they have to offer you from an academic standpoint. Everybody knows you can play sports. They know you, but the main thing, you need to develop your skills. The skills in the, in, in the classroom to be able to develop yourself long run when you get when the when the cheering stop just like you said. So true. you got a long life after sport because sport is short. There's only a few guys that play 10, 15 years. Right. In any any sport, any sport, you know. So you always got to have that fallback uh, thing with, with with academics. So true. 
You know, AD, uh, you know, it, it hits me every time we talk about this. And we and you and I have talked about your era and the standard that uh, that you your 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 era set at SC, but you played for two of the greatest coaches in their sports in the history of all of collegiate athletics. Well, I was very fortunate. I learned a lot. I try to emphasize that to people. I think SC, I think people from USC who knows the legacy of USC, that's what they want. That's the standard. I played in the greatest time in the school's history. I think it's proven by the national championships I've been on and the players I played with, the teammates I played with. We represent that legacy. And I know the great FC alum around the country, especially here in Southern California, knows what that stands for. And I'm proud to say that I was part of that. And, you know, and like when Guy once told me, because, you know, I didn't follow the stats of me and whatever, he said, Anthony, did you know you're the only five-time national champion in SC's history and the NC2A champion in both in two sports? I said, no, I didn't know that. But I said, I said return. I said, first of all, I'd like to say I played two great coaches, two great legacies, and it still stands. I don't know too many people can, can, can match the 70s of us. We won it in baseball, football, track, golf, swimming. I mean, we played in the greatest era. I believe in NC2A history, collectively of all the sports. Oh. I don't know any other school's ever done it. You don't and, 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 the people, and, the people, and the people listening, if you don't believe me, just go to the internet and pull it up. <laughs> um, how many national championships in the 70s? And start with 1972 and go on. <laughs> you, you 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 know you can't you can't do that playing one sport. I mean you know listen here's the thing you play for John McKay and Rod Dato Rod Dato, you know the only other thing you could do that to, 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 you should, you could have left you could have left there and gone across gone across town and played basketball for John McKay I mean for John Wooden and you would right. have had you know another another two or three but you know you were an SC you picked up five national championships you played for two of the greatest right. coaches ever in the history of collegiate sports. Uh, you know, you know, and and that's that's amazing. I mean, you, you guys could play for Bobby Knight. They could play for, you know, Coach V. They could play for John uh, John Wooden. Uh, but you know, you play for two. You play two sports. Two of the greatest coaches at the same school, which you don't see a lot of. Uh, it, it, and you're right. It's remarkable, and it's something to be extremely proud of. And those of us who know you uh, realize what you accomplished and. And that's one of the reasons I, you know, I you hear me, you might not hear me, but when I'm talking to my, our good friend um, Bob Case, you know, it's, you know, bitching about the fact that you should be in the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. There's things that you know, recognition you should have gotten that you haven't gotten. Uh, but you know, you got you got a great history to stand on, and 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 whether that's that kind of stuff comes or not, you know what you did. We know what you did, and I think the fans know what you did. Well, that's true, and uh, I think that's coming. But the thing is, if it doesn't come, well, the people who know me know what my accomplishments been, know what my teammates did around me and what my coaches took. They know the real deal, right. okay? So, I mean, you know, if, if, if people are going to use political things to do certain things, that's on them. they got to live with that, not me. I know what I've done. Everybody knows what else I've done, collegially and professionally. Yeah. And everybody knows if, if I had a better difference in another situation based on my ability, I believed in mine, it could have been an outcome professing, but it didn't, it didn't work out that way. But that's okay because, because I'm really proud of what's happened to this point. As well you should be, brother. Hey, AD, as always, man, I, I want to thank you so much for, for being a part of this show and, and being a part of the, the Swoops World community. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you on each week. 
and get a chance to chat with you. And I like the fact, and our our listeners like the fact that you shoot from the hip, you pull no punches, you tell it like it is, and you, and, and and I think that's what makes things interesting. Well, I mean, I think we live in a society today where people want to hear that. They don't want to hear, you know, the, the sugar-coated stuff. They don't want to hear the blah-blah stuff. So I try to tell them and tell them straight and, and honest from my opinion. You know, some people are not going to agree with me. You know, that's an Anthony Davis. He, he's this. He's coming from an arrogant standpoint. Well, you think what you want. I'm just going to put it out there and let you respond. And, 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 if, and if it makes people think, I'm Damn. doing my job. Damn straight. Because I want to do that. I want you to react. Oh, he needs to get off radio. He, he, well, I mean, I don't care what you think. I'm going to say what I want to say. <laughs> Tell everybody about your book, man, before we finish things off. The Notre Dame Killer, how he, uh, how he uh, I'm, 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 I don't have my notes in front of me. Go ahead. Well, the Notre Dame Killer was, it was done by my, uh, Anthony Davis and Jeremy Rosenberg. Uh, Dr. Daniel Amen wrote the four of the book. It is a great, it's a great read. You can get it on Amazon.com, or you can get it on uh, Lulu.com, and uh, you know, it's a great, it, it, it's good. It just exposes what I've been through and how I've uh, worked toward being healthy and having a functional life. Exactly. Kickoff concussion: How the Notre Dame Killer Recovered His Brain. You can find them in those spots. If you don't remember that, just go to the homepage of Swoops World, and it'll take you right to Lulu and pick up the book. Ad, thanks so much for joining us again, and we'll do it again real soon, brother. Take care. Thank you. You too. Anthony Davis, everybody. What a great show tonight. I really want to thank Anthony Davis. I want to thank Tom Mossman for joining me. Uh, always a pleasure to have AD, and it was great to have my good friend uh, and longtime friend, Tom Mossman, on the show and talk about what he's got going on today. Uh, a remarkable story for both of them. I mean, you know, you, you heard it if you tuned in late. You know, Tom Mossman owner and uh, coach at go the distance multi-sport training you know didn't take up uh didn't take up uh marathon running until he was uh it was 10 years uh cured of uh clean of cancer and uh became an elite athlete coaching a lot of different people helping them achieve their goals ad as we we all know five-time national champion two-time all-american out of usc we had a blast tonight. We want to thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we love you here at Swoops World. We appreciate your, your patronage. And as I always say, dream as if you'll live forever, live as if you'll die today. Good night, all. The views and opinions expressed by the individual hosts and their guests do not necessarily reflect those of Talk Story Radio, its affiliates, or sponsors.